Hello and welcome to another edition of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is your host, John Jantz, and my guest today is Sally Hogshead. She is a self-proclaimed, I, I always have to say that because these titles sometimes these days, brand innovation consultant <laughs> and speaker, but she's also the author of Fascinate, Your Seven Triggers of Persuasion and Captivation. The book represents three years of research from uh, Sally and a team of folks and uh, explores the seven universal triggers of fascination. And uh, we may lose our PG rating uh, on this show because I'm going to be forced, forced to talk about sex. I can't help it. So, uh, Sally, thanks for joining me. <laughs> John, I'm going to be so proud if I get to get the first MP17 duct tape marketing <laughs> podcast. Well, I'm ready. I want to start this off with uh, with um, something that I'm sure all of my listeners want to know, and that is, what did you think of last week's basketball game? <laughs> because I graduated from Duke, this is uh, you, you might be surprised to hear that I only it was tangentially watching the game, but. My dad was excited. Um, yeah, my sister and I both went to Duke, so um, uh, definitely giving a shout out to the Blue Devils. Well, I you can you you know now that I do my research, right? Mm. Well done. <laughs> All right, so um, you state uh, that fascination is arguably arguably that's easy for you to say the most powerful <laughs> of product attachments. What do you mean by that? When we're fascinated by something, we're not just rationally remembering it, and we're not being convinced to buy it. We have some sort of innate attraction to it that's so much deeper and is to the level of even being instinctive. You know, when you're when you're almost um, irresistibly attracted to something, like I'm kind of fixated about buying an iPad. I don't know why. I, I mean, there are a lot of uh, product benefits that should sell this to me, but really it's that I feel the, what, this, this trigger of lust, the lust trigger towards the iPad, wanting to um, um, experience this product and interact with the product, and that's so much more than anything that Dell or Microsoft would be able to sell to me. Well, and, and since you threw out some brands, I mean, that's that's you know one of the things that I think you profess, that a lot of the brands we're attracted to that are... are using or activating uh, these triggers, songs we like, people, the person we get married to, the jobs we want to take. I mean, it's, it's fascination doesn't sound like it's just a, you know, this week's kind of new tactic. It almost sounds like it's built into everything we do. Ooh, that's an excellent point. When I, as I was researching this concept of fascination, I was looking for an alternative to the ways in which we as marketers try to communicate our ideas and the ways we've been taught as this man-made discipline of, of marketing, um, how to convince people of our arguments. And what I found was that if you go back through history, there are very specific patterns of why people become persuaded by certain ideas, uh, certain messages, certain people, and, uh, and, and, and the, those patterns are very consistent throughout time and across cultures. And so as the author of the book, I didn't really have to invent this. I was more cataloging what, what, what's already been proven over and over and over across time. And that, that's why fascination is um, so much deeper. It's hardwired into us. Well, and, and I, I said at the introduction that you did a study that went on for, I think uh, I read, a couple of years. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, how do you... How do you study fascination? I'm, I'm envisioning you, you know, showing pictures of stuff and, and seeing if people get aroused by it or something. <laughs> well, 
Well, we did a marketing research study. It was, uh, there, was, there was a qualitative study and a quantitative study. And the qualitative study was several hundred people in person and phone interviews around the country. The quantitative study was over a thousand people and in-depth marketing research of Americans 18 and up so that we could, we could try to study what are people fascinated by? How do they physically respond when they're fascinated? How much are they willing to pay for a fascinating brand versus a non-fascinating one? And that became the basis of a lot of what I wanted to prove in the book because I didn't want this to be my opinion and observation. It needed to be grounded in um, uh, something that was a lot more meaningful. So one of the things that we found, for example, in this research that we did is that women are willing to pay more to be fascinating than they pay for food and clothes combined on average. Women are willing to pay on average $338 a month of their take-home income, which is more than they spend on food and clothes combined, in order to be the most fascinating person in the room. And we asked them about this. Why? Why is it so important to be fascinating? And it's because when somebody is fascinating, it's not about having the most bling or being the most attention-getting. It's being able to have influence. It's being able to persuade people because not only are they focused on you, but you're connecting with them emotionally in a very deep and meaningful way. And that fascination is the key not only for us as marketers to communicate with our clients and with our consumers, but it's also us as parents. If I want to create a message that's going to have a, 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 it's going to resonate with my kids, it's going to be more influential than their Nintendo, more lasting than somebody that they're watching on television, I need to fascinate them. I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old. I'm very, very passionate about making sure that when I communicate with them that I'm, I'm doing so in a way that is not just going to be heard by them, but is going to be part of our relationship. It's going to bind us more closely. It's going to um, have me be a greater force in their lives forever and ever than, uh, th- than anything that's going on in the media or, or, or even when their friends start encouraging them to use drugs. And fascination is the key to have these Not just to have messages and marketing, but to have conversations and moments and memories with the people that matter most to us. Well, and so occasionally you have to alarm them, right? (laughs) As one of those, right? Um, Definitely, (laughs) alarm is very effective in that way. Yeah. So, so without you know dragging the listeners down thorough descriptions of each of these because I think we'll get into them. Um, do you mind listing the seven? I have them written down here if you can't remember them all in order. Sure. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've gone through the list before. But it, there are seven different triggers that you can take any type of uh, behavioral response and you can put it into one or more of these seven triggers. Power, lust, mystique, prestige, alarm, vice, and trust. And each trigger creates a very specific type of response that's different than all the other triggers. Alarm, as we were just talking about, compels people to act quickly with the threat of negative consequences. It's why we pay taxes on time. It's why we go to the gym for bikini season. Um, the, The trigger of mystique draws people closer because it makes them curious. It makes them want to know more about you. It makes them uh, ask questions and want to participate and become involved with you. Power, on the other hand, is about control and authority and dominance. That's a very different type of relationship and type of message. 
Yeah, and and uh, I mean, I think that when people, particularly people, start talking about big consumer brands, I think a lot of times, you know, it's pretty easy to see sort of attributes, right? That that kind of, you know, you buy a certain car because it's, you know, the BMW is, you know, says something from a brand standpoint that kind of meets one of these triggers, right? Is is probably an example that gets used all the time. But I'm wondering. I mean, I mean, I think that your book certainly doesn't just suggest, hey, these are nice things to know. Um, I, I think the deeper message, of course, is how do you tap this to uh, to to maybe make stronger engagement uh, a stronger brand uh, I mean uh, in fact can you go as far as saying there are intentional things that you should or could be doing to be more attractive yes and for your listeners there there are two things that I'd like to call out that that may not seem immediately obvious the first trigger that, uh, that that I would encourage people to look into applying within their own marketing especially for small businesses or sales is the vice trigger. And we think of vice as being something relegated to um, sex, drugs, rock and roll. And, and, and of course, th- those things have a near and dear place in the heart of vice. But really, this is a trigger that's about a counterintuitive way of thinking, of taking uh, a, a path or a pattern or a habit that's deeply ingrained and finding a way to shift it. And it's extremely effective for small businesses because unlike big blue chip companies that have invested decades and decades of marketing budgets into perpetuating a certain behavior, small businesses usually want to disrupt a behavior. They want to start a new behavior. They need to create some sort of a change. You've been buying this brand, but now we want you to buy that brand. You thought about operating in this category, come over to our niche category. We're going to be introducing a new product. Do you see what I mean? It's all about creating uh, a change in people's behavior. And the vice trigger invites people to consider a different alternative than one that they've thought about before. So people in companies that use the vice trigger tend to be very creative and original. They tend to be uh, untraditional and counterintuitive in a really healthy way. Uh, Richard Branson, Steve Jobs. Um, a, a lot of uh, a lot of entrepreneurs that have taken a different path, have broken the rules, have used vice very effectively by harnessing our instinctive desire to respond to new messages that go against what we were taught. Another trigger that's very effective is the alarm trigger, because the alarm trigger is about deadlines and consequences. So in marketing, by, by establishing very clear frameworks for... Uh, uh, we see it most commonly in, um, in infomercials like call now or only 10 left. You know, when you get that kind of a deadline, it makes you think, gosh, well, I, I didn't really need a, a set of Ginsu knives, but now that I know that if, if I call in 10 minutes, I get the, the football flip phone for free, then I'm incentivized to do it. That's another trigger that, um, that, that factors very nicely into uh, a, a small business marketer's mix. I think these, you know, when I listened to and read the very sort of distinct descriptions, um, I think there are very few small businesses, particularly, that, that could claim that their brand is all about one or the other. In fact, I think that yeah. uh, it's probably more of the cocktail approach, isn't it? This halftime break is brought to you by Constant Contact. Constant Contact helps small businesses and nonprofits build great customer relationships with email marketing, event marketing, and online surveys. Visit them today at constantcontact.com and sign up for your free 60-day trial. 
very much so. And I think that we, we as small business people need to be more innovative and aggressive and uh, we need to invent our own combinations instead of falling into the stereotypes that bigger brands can afford to have because we don't have cliches associated with us. You mentioned at the beginning of the conversation BMW. BMW is a classic power prestige trigger combination. So is Armani. So is GE. So is IBM. These are the blue chip types of stocks that we can think of as stereotypes um, that, that only need one or two triggers, whereas we have to have a more facile marketing mix. In fact, um, I take that another step into, and because obviously a lot of businesses are, you know, it's the person, right? It's the owner of the business. It's yeah. maybe it's the salesperson. And so they're, they're, you spend a lot of time talking about certainly your personal fascination. In fact, I am um, at the request of, of someone in your organization went ahead on and took your F score. Um, uh, mm. test. And so why don't you talk a little bit about that aspect of sort of measuring your, your you know, are you fascinating or what kind of fascination are you? We all use different triggers naturally in our personality. It's, it's almost like a talent. We have certain characteristics in our personality that tap into different triggers when we're trying to persuade other people. And I developed this personality test that helps you figure out which triggers you're using when you're being your most persuasive. Somebody who uses the power trigger operates very differently than somebody that uses primarily the trust trigger. And it's important for you to know which triggers already exist within your personality so that you can hone those and use them as strengths rather than as weaknesses. So uh, if um, um, somebody with a, a personality combination of, of power and prestige is going to have more of the BMW, Armani, IBM genre that we were just talking about. They're going to be strong leaders, uh, very authoritative. They're going to have a great deal of respect. They're, they're, they're going to, among their peer group, consistently want to be at the top of that peer group. They're going to be more comfortable being in a position of control. Whereas somebody who has a personality combination of lust, mystique, is going to be very emotional, evocative. They're going to be uh, more right-brained, very focused on, um, on relationships, but on um, the give and take within a conversation of how much they share and how much they withhold. And anybody can take this test. It's for free, available online at my website at sallyhogshead.com slash F-score. It's called the F-score test, as in fascination score. Well, now, let me kind of flip that around. What if I am in a position, I mean, I'm a sale, I'm, I own a business. Uh, what I really like doing is, is playing with my computer and, and designing the software. But the reality is I have to get out there and influence people. I have to lead people. I have to persuade people. I mean, are there ways that I can strategically sort of enhance my, maybe the places where I'm weak? Yes. Exactly, and it's, it's absolutely critical to understand the triggers that are dormant in our personality. I'll call them the dormant triggers because they're the ones that we could theoretically activate if we choose to, and we may in certain situations, but um, it, there can be a risk to, to not using certain triggers. For example, if you are a salesperson, if you're not using the power trigger at some point in your personality, you're going to be missing out on the opportunity to, uh, to, to develop a, a reputation with a certain level of respect and to be able to have a, a certain type of authority in the way in which you're conducting your sales process. It's not to say that you have to make it your primary trigger, but it's critical for you to know that that is the lowest ranking trigger within your personality so that you can choose to heighten it or not. And the test 
uh, helps understand the, the cost benefit of not using a trigger as well as using one. Now, if I'm a if I'm a business or a product or a service, and quite frankly, I'm not really that fascinating, um, and which unfortunately I think a lot of businesses fall into being extremely ordinary. Um, is there a way, or, or I should say, can you give me maybe one or two, or the number one way that that you would suggest a business sort of turn inward and find uh, that place where they could stand out? And because I think that's a lot of what we're talking about, some sort of differentiator uh, that would make them more fascinating. Yes, I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of people think that they're not innately fascinating. In fact, 60% of Americans say they're less fascinating than the average American. Uh, businesses are the same way. But in fact, the reality is we are all fascinating because fascination comes from our own natural innate strengths, both as people and as companies. And in the book, I, um, I outline very specifically what I call the fascination badges, these 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 parts of our own brand that all of us already have, including our heritage, our culture, our behavior, our core beliefs. By tapping into these things and beginning to identify them, we can methodically figure out how we can take each of these things and apply our primary trigger to that to make it more more persuasive, more compelling, and more memorable to the people that we're trying to persuade, whether that's a client or a consumer. And as I hear you share that list, uh, to me, it, it sounds a lot like what you're suggesting is that, you know, businesses let their hair down a little bit, that they show an emotional side, that they find a way to make personal engagements that may or may not have anything to do with their products or services. Yes, that's a great point. For example, uh, one of the fascination badges is uh, heritage. Nike, um, a brand that we all know and love, is known for its fabulous multi-million dollar television commercials, like the Tiger Woods one that just ran. But uh, one of the most fascinating things about Nike is the way that it taps into its own heritage to, uh, to, to establish a belief system among its employees and the people that it deals with. So um, you may remember Bill Bowerman, he, when, when he initially developed that waffle design for the famous Nike shoe that, la- that revolutionized the category, on the Nike business card, there's a waffle iron that's just a subtle wink as a nod to what their heritage is. Uh, An agency, an advertising agency I used to work for, the Martin Agency. The the Martin Agency uh, was recently named Agency of the Year by Advertising Age, and they're known for having a very inclusive culture, one that um, brings everybody together. And so when they designed their new building, architecturally what they did is created a foyer in which everybody can participate in agency meetings by by designing um, literally a heart to the building so that in this foyer, when somebody's standing in the middle, the entire company can be part of it on the floors, watching over, participating. These are really subtle things that the company was already doing. They weren't artificially adding this on. This was uh, just a natural extension of their of their actions, of the very um, seemingly meaningless things that differentiate them, that ultimately become defining in what the company stands for and how it enrolls its employees and how it shares itself and its brand with its uh, with its customers. You know, and I think, and I'm talking to uh, Sally Hogshead and her fascinating book. I had to say that, sorry. Fascinate. Um, <laughs> and uh, so 
we're, we're about to wrap up, and I, and I, I kind of want to end with this thought. You know, where does authenticity um, play a role in all this? Because I think there is a little bit of danger sometimes when people read a book like this to say, you know what, we need to bring more alarm into our branding, or we need to, be, you know, we need to act more powerful. And, and I'm, I'm not thinking that I'm hearing you necessarily suggest that somebody pick one of these and go with it. Uh, that's correct. In fact, marketing is what's inauthentic. Marketing is an artificial discipline that didn't even exist until the middle of the 20th century. Marketing is something that's man-made. It was invented um, by business people for businesses. Fascination, on the other hand, is completely innate. We were born with certain fascinations. We're born to be fascinated by the faces of our parents. We're born to have certain types of relationships that are facilitated by things like smiles and handshakes. And this leads me to the final trigger that I'd like to address, which is the most important trigger, and that's the trust trigger. It's the last one in the book because it's the single most important trigger in facilitating relationships. The trust trigger is not about getting attention for any reason other than being consistent, safe, reliable, dependable, so that people feel as though that in a chaotic and overstimulating world, they can count on you. And trust is the trigger that drives bottom line results more so than anything. Trust is the trigger that when somebody is evaluating your business proposal, they're thinking about your products, they, you're facing um, increasing competition within your category or from a specific competitor. Trust is the trigger that will have people come back to you over and over and over again. It's incredibly difficult to earn. It's the most precious trigger there is, and it's the easiest one to break because it's all about authenticity. Yeah, and, you know, I think that that has um, um, actually, with particularly in the last 10 years, I think with each passing year, has become even more important. The, the, the fact that our prospects, our customers actually have access to, in some cases, more information than we do um, about our products and services, and they're able to express that that knowledge and that opinion and 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 share in in the building of that trust in some very very public ways, or or potentially the eroding of that trust in some very public ways. That um, I, I think that that um, has probably become. Uh, more so, uh, that, more, that, that point has become uh, more essential than ever. It used to be very easy to establish trust because there, there, there wasn't a lot of stimulation, there weren't many choices, and there wasn't a lot of transparency. It's incredibly expensive to build trust right now because you have to be more committed to trust than you are at a short-term bottom line. But ultimately, establishing trust is a, a tremendous driver for bottom line results because it means that in a competitive world, people will be more fascinated with you in a deeply authentic way than they will with your competition. Well, and I think that in this sort of totally connected world we live in, um, one part that probably doesn't get said enough, people talk about building trust, but I think you have to, um, maybe equally important, extend trust. Um, and I think that that's, uh, that's the part that marketers have trouble with. Yes, they, uh, they, people think of trust as something they're going to do, like a campaign, like this year for 2010, we're trust. <laughs> Next year, it's going to be simplicity or some other buzzword. And trust can't be a buzzword. Trust has to be something that comes through and through on your, your actions, your decisions, your behavior. Every person throughout the company has to be completely reliable and accountable. And uh, that, that's what makes it so difficult to earn and so easy to lose. 
Well, Sally, um, I appreciate you joining me and, and sharing uh, information about uh, the book Fascinate. Uh, certainly there's more information at sallyhogshead.com, and obviously the book is available uh, pretty much anywhere people buy and sell books. John, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be able to talk to you. I'm a big fan of your book, too. Well, thanks very much, and uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime, or, or we'll run into each other out there uh, in uh, crossing paths. <laughs> Wonderful. I very much look forward to it. All right. Take care.